One of them leans forward and he said, Pablo, I have a gift for you. And there's a picture of an 11-year-old girl on his phone. That was the first time I was shown a child that was being sold. And within a couple minutes, we could hear two of the kids, at least two or more, crying. Looking in her eyes at that moment, I made a commitment to myself, to God, and to that little girl that I would dedicate my life to eradicating that evil. Paul Hutchinson, the primary investor and executive producer of a little film you may have heard called Sound of Freedom. He has led or held a critical role in over 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries, and he's contributed to or been directly involved in rescuing over 5,000 children. Vice comes out with an article that says Sound of Freedom producer felt the naked breasts of apparently underage trafficking victim. And that, of course, is referring to you. True, false, and what say you about the allegations? True. True. Okay, I'll tell you the story. What's up, Tribe listeners? I want to talk about our sponsor for today's episode, GoBundance, the tribe for healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. It's a tribe I've been a part of for five years now, and it's I keep coming back year after year because of the quality of the connections and interactions that I get and the accountability that I get toward the goals that I'm looking to achieve. GoBundance has meant everything to me, so I'm really, really proud to sit here on the Tribe of Millionaires podcast and tell you a little bit about GoBundance. Here's the thing. Why do you live where you live? Think about it. Why do you live in the neighborhood you live in or the apartment building you live in or wherever it might be? Usually, people move into a community because of the quality of the neighbors and all of the amenities that are available to them. And then they go about using those amenities and leveraging that community to the best of their ability for growth. They make connections with neighbors, lifelong friendships, things that serve them. We want that for ourselves, for our wives or husbands and our children. That's what GoBundance is at the next level. Imagine if you're a man moving into a community of other millionaire men that are driven toward being the best versions of themselves as fathers, as husbands, in their health, in their relationships, in their contribution, you name it. That's what GoBundance provides. For me, it's been everything. I get with my GoBundance brothers on a weekly basis and I tell them, this is where I'm trying to go. Things I can't share with the regular folks in my life, my friends, my family that I've known forever. They only know me for who I've been. GoBundance guys, they know me only for who I'm becoming. And when I deviate, when I go off course from being that guy, from taking action toward being that guy, that's when they step in, that's when they hold me accountable, and that's what accelerates my growth. Go to GoBundance.com right now and apply. If you're a millionaire and a man, GoBundance.com. If you're a woman and a millionaire, GoBundanceWomen.com. And if you're not quite a millionaire, go to GoBundanceEmerge.com and you join me in the community that I've created in partnership with GoBundance to get yourself to that place of being what we call a whole life millionaire. GoBundance.com. You can start there, see everything that we have to offer. It's an incredible community. I can't wait for you to be a part of it. Now, back to the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Tribe of Millionaires podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Gruber. Today's guest is going to be fascinating on so many levels. Paul Hutchinson is co-founder of Bridge Investment Group Partners, which has grown to over $48 billion in assets under management, but has since turned his attention to eradicating child and human trafficking. Paul's also the primary investor and executive producer of a little film you may have heard called Sound of Freedom. The film highlights the rescue of over 120 victims in Colombia from a child trafficking organization, one of the largest child rescues in history. And Paul, this guy himself, held a pivotal role in the rescue 
and in the movie, his part played by a well-known Mexican actor whose name I would butcher if I even tried it, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> Paul founded the Child Liberation Foundation, an organization actively involved in the fight against child trafficking. And this is the crazy part. He has led or held a critical role in over 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries. And he's contributed to or been directly involved in rescuing over 5,000 children. Truly an honor, Paul. Thank you, Jamie. Great to be on with your with your guests here. And I'm here from the other side of the world. I'm broadcasting from from Thailand. And uh, so it's it's late outside, but that's uh, it's the best time to connect with the rest of the world. Absolutely. We might get into why there, because I know Thailand, where I am, Dominican Republic, there's so many places that you've done work in the past. But I think yeah. I want to start here. Can you define or explain as best you can in you know a few sentences, what is child trafficking specifically? Child, well, human trafficking as a whole is any time that somebody is forcing another person against their will in uh, either sex trafficking or, or organ harvesting or in labor trafficking. And, uh, and, and human trafficking as a whole is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And a huge percentage of them are children. And uh, so that's what child trafficking is. And the, the focus that we have um, put forward over the last 10 years is identifying children that are being trafficked for for either sex or or organ harvesting when when you think of this idea of child trafficking it obviously has the seedy underbelly feel of some place in colombia or the dr or thailand all of that and that's true there is that you will get into where you spent some time which is some of the some of the most disgusting places on the planet really but what is the what's the more mainstream because I, I think child trafficking human trafficking it may feel like it's an over there problem, especially for Americans. But can Absolutely. you get into maybe where where people are a little bit blind to the idea Ab that child trafficking is happening right in their backyard? Absolutely. The, the United States is the number one producer and consumer of child pornography in the world and is the number one consumer of of, tra of traveling uh, for these horrible things to other third world countries. However, in the United States, there are hundreds of thousands of children who are being trafficked. In fact, uh, you know, if, if a parent leaves a Sound of Freedom movie and they're like, okay, yeah, what can I do? What can I do? You know, the worst thing you can do is go be a Rambo and go to Columbia and try to go rescue some kids. You're going to get shot, right? And you're, you're probably going to get arrested. The best thing you can do is go home and hug your kids. And people say, well, how, how does that fix it? Well, it makes a huge difference because the children that are most likely to be taken into trafficking come from broken families, runaways, a broken foster care program, et cetera. However, even a bigger problem is the fact that there are millions of victims who sleep in their own beds at night. People are like, what? How does that happen? Yeah, they're, they're being trafficked by their babysitter, by their uncle, by the next door neighbor. It happens all the time, all the time. We, we did a rescue in, in Alcapoco, Mexico, and one of the children that were brought was 13 years old. She was being groomed by her aunt who was working with the traffickers. Her aunt told her, look, you're going to lose your virginity anyway. If you lose it to one of these rich Americans, we'll pay you a few hundred dollars. 
they were charging us $5,000. There was other ones in Cabo San Lucas and others. A 13-year-old American that, that was down there was a, a broken family, and she was, she was out with her 17-year-old her sister. The traffickers had drugged her. The list goes on. Having a healthy relationship with your children where they can come to you and say, you know what, Dad, I, I feel uncomfortable when you have me hug Uncle Harry, or I, I feel uncomfortable when I go to this friend's house because her brother touches me like this. Or, you know, our babysitter is showing us pornography and she tells us that we should trust her more than you. These are grooming behaviors. And, and the big problem, the big, big problem is the fact that literally one in every four women that are listening to us right now, one in every four have been a victim of sexual violence as a child and most of them in their own home. So these are all subjects that we can go through, but these are the things that we need to do to keep our kids safe, not just be a helicopter mom when, when they're, when they're traveling internationally, which you should be. And we can talk about that, but there's a lot more danger right there in our own backyards. That's insane. That's terrifying. And I was going to ask you, how do we, what signs do we have? But I love what you said about uh, being open and, and having discussions with your kids and listening to them. Wow, that's scary. That's so scary. Because you do, you picture it being somewhere else and it's really not. Um, the one in four women, I can't help but, but ask this question. Of that one in four women that have been victims of sexual abuse, trafficking, whatever it might be in their childhood, are they also the perpetrators today? in many cases of child trafficking? Well, it's more so the men. Um, with men, it's a lower number. It's one in five at some time in their life are, are uh, a victim of sexual violence. But even that number, one fourth of them was under the age of 10 years old and most of them in their own homes. So yes, there's massive amounts of childhood trauma that people are holding on to. And, and I'll answer your question this way, Jamie. People ask me all the time, they say, Paul, how can you go face to face with somebody selling a child and not have them see the anger and the hatred in your eyes? And my answer surprises them and it, and it pisses some of them off. I don't hate them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a sympathizer. I put my life in danger to ensure they never hurt innocence again. They, they, will, they will be in a place where they cannot pass that trauma on again. However, the thing I wish more than anything is that I could go back five or 10 years in their life, had a time machine, go back and figure out what was going on in their life before they ever took that path of harming a child and figure out how to give them the help that they need. Chances are they were raped themselves. Very, very, very high chances they were raped themselves as children and probably a thousand other bad things that happened to them. Now that still doesn't justify their actions because they made a thousand bad decisions to get them to the point where they thought that it was okay to sell a child. However, if we can take it from that standpoint, we don't, we don't have a time machine. But what we do have is hundreds of millions, if not billions, statistically, globally, of people who have dealt with childhood trauma that, that fortunately, God bless them, two-thirds of them 
grow up and they they're they're stalwart they they deal with their their pain they 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 use it as a motivation to never ever ever pass that on and protect children however one in three if not given the help that they need one in three will become contact offenders themselves in physical abuse verbal abuse or the sexual abuse of a child so Yes, the, the, the biggest thing after 10 years of undercover work in 70 undercover rescue missions, I, I took a step back and I, I said to myself, I said, Paul, if your goal is to eradicate child trafficking, you're not doing a very good job because there's more children being sold today than there was 10 years ago. So what's the solution? I realized that every time we went in and pulled these kids out, there was another because not enough was being done to fix the demand. It left a vacuum. And 10, 20, 30 more children were being sucked into the deepest recesses of hell to fill that demand site. So we as humanity need to take a few steps back and say, okay, what really needs to happen to fix this? Well, what needs to happen to fix this is right in our own homes. We need to, we need to identify the perpetrators in our family or more important than that, we need to help people heal before they grow up and pass that on. The simple act of talking about it reduces the chances of passing that trauma on exponentially. The problem is that the average person is 52 years old. That's my age. The average age that somebody comes out and speaks about abuse that they encountered as a child is 52. They've already raised their kids. They've already dealt with all of this, these issues. They've either low self-esteem or anger issues or anxiety or, or in some of those cases, like I said, passing that trauma on. So if we can take our teenagers and our young adults that, and help them see, let's just talk about it. The problem is, problem is Jim, especially men, Men don't want to talk about it. You know, I was, I was eight years old and my uncle did these horrible things to me. And, you know, if I, if I say anything about that, then I'll be less of a man. No, you won't. You were eight. You were eight years old and somebody passed their trauma onto you and you've held on to it all these years. That doesn't define you today. You can, you can, you can shed that energy. That person if, if, and unfortunately, people wait till they're 52 because of the fact that the perpetrator is likely dead by then, right? Yeah. They don't have to deal with all that negativity. Deal with it now. Move forward, release it so that it's not creating all this animosity and anger and hatred and things that are going to be passed on to other children. That's the solution. I think about, I think about demand. And I think about, well, your story in some ways, as far as your recruitment into this world of, of you know, eradicating trafficking. You were, as we talked about, you know, running a, a real estate fund. Makes sense in some ways, because I think I've heard you say, you're not a real estate guy, you build teams, you build, you know, you, you're a leader. So leadership makes sense. I see that transfer. But the other part, which may be a bit of an insult, is you're also a bit of the, of the avatar. You're a rich white guy that can go in to these stings, if you will, and have some level of credibility, like you wear it, you own it. So I, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the question on demand is, 
I think of, or what we, when we talk about this, it conjures images or thoughts of Jeffrey Epstein, this elite class of rich people, you know, going after and, and bringing, you know, young girls or young kids to a private island. Is that where the demand truly is? I think about the U.S. being the number one consumer traveling abroad to do these de- terrible things. There's the trauma and all of that. But I, is the demand rich white men? Is that is that like a huge portion of it? Well, well, well here, here's the problem. In America, most of us would be classified from a global standpoint as rich, right? You're, yeah. you're in $40,000 a year. You're rich compared to most of the world. And so, yes. Now, it's not just the, the multimillionaires and the billionaires and whatever. It's anybody who has got a, an unregulated, arrogant ego that that sees himself or herself as above others. And here's what was interesting. The very first time I met traffickers, now this is the one that Sound of Freedom movie was, was based on. I, I flew down to Cartagena, Colombia. I thought that what I was going to see were guys with, with big tattoos on their cheeks and, and three earrings in their noses and all this stuff. What I saw was very different. The first trafficker I met was a businessman in a white polo shirt, clean shaven. The second one was a female, young female, who was a beauty queen and, and ran a modeling agency. The third one was a, a metrosexual, very well-dressed man who, who ran a modeling company. And I thought, that's not the typical trafficker. What is typical here? And I, I realized over the last 10 years in doing all of these things that the traffickers and the, the demand side, the, the perpetrators, both of them shared in one thing. It was, it was a complete disregard for humanity as a whole, an, an arrogance, a greed of, of selfishness that, that when we went back, when I went back to the U.S. and I started looking around, I, I thought, how many of us, how many of us share in that same energy? Yeah, I'm not a pedophile and these guys and my business partners, they weren't. Either. However, how many of us in any way look at another human being as less than ourselves because of our financial condition, because of our gender, because of our skin color? No, those things do not make us better than somebody. And as soon as we start going down that road, then, then, we, then we eventually that's what leads to war. That's what leads to all this contention. That's what leads to child trafficking. And so the answer is the demand comes from any society that, that, that cultivates this, this greed and this arrogance that, that, that subjugates other people. And we see it in pornography as well. Now, understand this. Everybody who's listening right now is seeing pornography, right? Doesn't mean you're yeah. going to become a pedophile. But every one of these guys started with a hardcore addiction. So, you, and, and what happened is that that addiction, just like a hardcore drug, they needed something harder to have that same fix. And pretty soon, harder was a little bit younger, a little bit younger. Pretty soon, they were fantasizing about something they wouldn't even thought was attractive five years ago. And then they're acting out on these horrific fantasies. Well, back it up, even, you know, I, 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 pornography is a victimless crime. I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. Well, yes, you are. Number one, the very moment that we take a woman from a divine feminine to an object, we start stepping down that road, right? And you need to understand that a huge percentage, people say upwards of 80, 85% of women 
online, engaging in, in you know, showing their bodies to the world are not there by choice. They are being trafficked in some way. Somebody is making money and forcing them into that. So yes, you are contributing to the problem by, by commoditizing women in that way. So scary and so sad. What is it about you specifically, skill set, I don't know, demeanor that made you, I don't know, a, a top-notch undercover operative? <laughs> it was interesting. So a year, year before I was recruited, I, was, uh, I called up Sean Reyes. He was our attorney general in Utah. I said, I said what's up, AG? I said, uh, I, have, I have front row tickets to the Miss America pageant. You want to come? And his exact words, he said, Hutch, unlike you, I have a reputation to uphold. I can't be front row of Miss America. I said, no, no, it's not like that. I said, I said I, there, there's me and one of the founders of Yahoo. We're, we're sponsoring some, some young children who lost their fathers in military battle. And, and we're going uh, to have them crowned Miss America on stage. So fast forward, he goes, yeah, that's cool. I'll come out. So we were there and because it was a fallen soldier charity that the Pentagon had sent a representative named John. John was a CIA recruiter for 25 years. And after two or three days there, we're sitting there at dinner. It was myself and, and Sean Reyes and a, a couple of the, the former Miss Americas there and this John. And uh, John leans forward and he said, Mr. Hutchinson. I've been uh, watching you for the last three days, and I think your country could use your talents. <laughs> I said, well, what talents are those? <laughs> you know, he said, he said I, um, I spent my career trying to find people like you. You're about one in 12 million with the skill sets that I saw. He said, your ability to break the barrier of communication and become best friends in minutes with a bum on the street, a billionaire or a runway model is something that we can't teach. He said, he said that by itself is super unique. He said, but how you did it was very unique. He said, he said, and you also have the, he said, imagine this, we'll send you to Dubai, line you up with some dirty money guys. You have the perfect backstory. You, you have a multi-billion dollar investment fund and you become their friends and their, and, uh, get the information and, and we'll line you up with some real money guys just to make it worth your time. Well, I ended up turning his guys down when they called me and I, 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 I didn't want to put my life in danger for some white collar crime guys in Dubai. Fast forward a year later, reportedly, I wasn't there. There was a meeting with the attorney general and, and uh, I think Josh Romney was there, Mitt Romney's uh, son. He ran for president and, and the Homeland Security agent who Jim Caviezel plays in the movie. And uh, he was looking for somebody who could play a role, somebody who, was, who, was, who had a big ego, big money, could throw cash around, could, could handle himself undercover. And, and I, had some, I have a set of skills from a previous life that makes me somewhat safe in a dangerous place. You can't just go there with not, not, not being able to deal with, with things if they get bad. And uh, so he was, he was telling about this person that could go undercover and, and, and play this role of this wealthy buyer. And, and Sean Reyes said, well, have you ever met Paul Hutchinson? He's remembering the meeting we had a year before with the CIA agent. And, and Josh Romney said, well, Paul would be perfect. And later I told him, I said, I don't think that's a compliment. You guys both thought that I'd be a good undercover pedophile, right? <laughs> but that's where, uh, that's where the first conversation came in. And then I was introduced to the Homeland Security agent and I helped to fund some things and then was asked to go to Colombia and, uh, and play a part in that mission. And that's seeing that firsthand is what changed my whole life. What was that first mission like for you? I can't imagine that you were cool as a cucumber. Can you just walk me through, 
you know, the maybe the machinations of it, the step-by-step, the, the step, you know, what, what was that like? Okay, so picture this. I'm, I'm raising billions of dollars for my investment fund with uh, my business partner, Don. We're in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're at this opulent hotel meeting with third generation billionaire families telling them about how they can keep their money with us, right? And I get this phone call from the, from the, the Homeland Security agent who, who Sean had introduced me to. And he said, Paul, he said, I'm in, I'm in uh, Cartagena, Colombia. There's not just 20 children here. There's more than 50 and there's more than 100 children in the surrounding areas that we could rescue. But I think we can rescue over 100 children on the same day, but I need your help. And I said, well, well, how much do you need? He said, I need you. Can you be in Columbia in two days? I said, um, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm, I'm not really just the part. He goes, he goes, well, you need to come down as a wealthy real estate investor. He said, the head trafficker down here has a piece of property. He wants to develop into a child brothel sex resort. He needs a few million dollars to do it. And we believe that if you come down and tell him, look, I'll fund your project under one condition. You have to prove to me that you have the inventory. And they already knew he had over 14 children of his own he was controlling and through the other other uh, traffickers that were there, over 50 children. So so I was going to tell him, I'll, I'll fund it if uh, if we have a party and, and um, you bring all of your existing inventory. And if I like them, then great, I'll fund your deal. And so, so, so Tim said, you come down as a, as a wealthy real estate investor. And I, I looked down at myself as I'm on the phone with him. I've got, I've got a suit on that costs more than my first car, right? I've got, I've got a custom shirt with monograms and I, I've got, I've got um, a Breitling watch that costs way more than my first car, right? And, and, uh, and cufflinks. And I'm like, I, I, I think I, I think I'm where I, I, I have the outfit. He goes, great. Be on a plane tomorrow. So that's uh, and and what happened too is I I then got a phone call because my one business partner was there and he must have called my other one, the co-founder of the fund, John. John called me up about an hour later and he said, "Paul, I heard about what you're considering doing." He said, "Have you thought through this?" He said, "This is really dangerous." He said, "You're set. You could you could you could." You know, Keep building this pretty soon. You can sell out, buy an island, be happy the rest of your life. And I said, John, would I really be happy if I bought an island, if I bought a jet, if I bought a yacht? I said, if I was doing something else dangerous tomorrow, if I was climbing Everest, you and I would have the same conversation, wouldn't we? He goes, yeah, we probably would. I said, when I'm 95 years old and I look back on my life and I say, I climbed this mountain and I helped build this multi-billion dollar company. I helped rescue this many children from slavery. Which of them matters at all? He said, you're right. There's something about you and your background, your skill set that can help those kids. You should go. And um, he's been one of the greatest supporters of the foundation ever since. But so I won't go through all the details. It'll take our whole podcast, but I'll, I'll just put it this way. Um, two, two key points. First of all, I flew down there. Two days later, I'm face-to-face with these traffickers. Like I just said, they were very different from what I thought. And halfway through the meeting, one of them leans forward and he said, Pablo, I have a gift for you. I said, really, what's your gift? And he leans forward and he hands me his phone. 
and there's a picture of an 11 year old girl on his phone. Mm. He said, this is princess. She's still a virgin. We just took delivery of some. She's my gift for you for this party. And he started talking about horrific things I could do to this child. Now in the movie, I, I gave some resistance when the Homeland Security agent wanted me to come on the, on the, the rescue. And I only overcame it when he gave a picture of this little girl to my driver. And I says, okay, I'll go. In real life, I was already there. I was face to face with these guys and showing me that picture galvanized my commitment. That was the first time I was shown a child that was being sold, especially a virgin. And so when we went back, we set up this party and everything. They brought 54 children. And we put them in a separate place in this, this kind of a palapa bungalow type of an area because we didn't want them seeing the guns and the money changing hands, everything else. And we're sitting there negotiating with these guys. And we're trying to get them to say exactly why the kids are there because we had undercover cameras because we never want the children to have to stand trial and witness against them. We want them to go to jail for life based on all the evidence collected there. And halfway through this, one of them stands up and he said, Pablo, I have to show you the gifts that I brought you. And he went in the house where the children were. And within a couple of minutes, we could hear two of the kids, at least two or more of the children, crying, scared to death. After about 10 minutes, he came out and he had four virgins, three little girls, one little boy. This little boy I was told that he was brought in from Haiti. He was 11. They gave him cocaine that morning because he was so scared. What kind of the monster thinks that that's attractive? You know, I, everything in me, everything, wanted to just hug the kids and say, you're going to be fine. I could, you know, we couldn't say that. We're still, the agents hadn't come yet. And they, they brought this girl in front of me, the same one that they showed me on the picture. They called her princess. She was 11. And I'm sitting down and her standing up was about eye level to me. And I could see in her eyes and all I could see was fear. Her makeup had been stained because of her, her crying. And I, I asked her, I said, I said, come to us. What's your name? She didn't answer. I'm sure it's because her real name wasn't Princess. She was scared trying to figure out what she should say. And I just said, Esteban, it's okay. You know, I told the traffickers, not time for the party yet. We still got to talk. But looking in her eyes at that moment, I made a commitment to myself, to God, and to that little girl that I would dedicate my life to eradicating that evil from the face of the earth. Incredible. What happens to these kids, those kids, after they're rescued? Where do they go? Are they back to their home country? Do they go to the United States? Where, where, what happens to these kids after you? If, after you um, if the parents reported them abducted, then, it, then it's easy to find them and get them back. Most of these kids um, came from broken families or foster program that wasn't working right. And, and um, a lot of them... We're from that area, that country, poor areas in there. It's, uh, it's very seldom like what you see in the movie where it's a healthy family that gets duped that, that these kids are brought in. 
but um, we don't want to take these kids out of hell and put them into another hell. Our yeah. goal at that point is healing. And, uh, and healing comes if we can find a healthy family for them, a healthy environment that's away from all of this. Um, or if indeed, which a large percentage were, are these kids that slept in their own beds at night, their parents didn't realize that these traffickers were grooming children in the junior high school, et cetera, then those ones are getting all of the, the therapy and the help that they need. Similar to the girl I told you that was brought to us in El Capoco, um, by her own aunt. Her mother had no idea what was going on. And um, this aunt had been showing her pornography and, and uh, grooming her and working with the traffickers, etc. So, um, and that's why we're here in, in Thailand. We did a lot of, of, uh, of work here. In fact, half the children that were rescued here in Southeast Asia were sold by their own families. And in that case, you don't want to put them back into a home where they're going to be sold again. You need to find a healthy place for them to learn a better skill, to go back to, to get to go to school, to have a healthy family. Um, we have some sister foundations that are doing some pretty amazing things. They, they uh, one has helped over thirty thousand victims over the last twenty years, and their 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 process is they take these children who don't have a home who were in this in, in trafficking and then they'll they'll find a family a mom and a dad and a child who are in a destitute position financially they're going to be out on the streets with this child and everything else and they say here's the deal we're going to give you a home and donors like myself and others will help to pay for these homes we're going to give you a little two or three bedroom home in this this region that's that's few hours away from the main city. This is in Guatemala. And, um, and they have a beautiful farm and a ranch and stuff, and they'll give them a job and they'll give them a couple more kids as well. So they take these traffic children and they integrate them and they'll have therapists and psychiatrists and all of these people that are there helping them with a, with a healthy environment away from everything else. And it's a win, win, win for everybody. So there's a lot of different modalities and different groups that we work with to help heal the children. And that's why we're here now is in, in uh, working on some things for the, uh, the safe houses and the healing retreats for the child liberation foundation. And, um, so that we can, we can be even more effective at helping the children mm -hmm. heal. With what you just described that first mission, the, I mean, my, my stomach was hurting listening to you talk about this little girl, the makeup streaming, Esta bien. I live in the Dominican. Like, it's going to be fine. Right? Like this, this, this desire to just grab this kid and hug her and let her know it's going to be okay. And then on the other side of that, you've got to kind of play the role in that moment. And then after what you just described, I didn't know about the safe houses, uh, the, the reintegration process for these kids. With all of that being there and anyone that's listening that has half a heart, a quarter of a heart, I mean, 10% of a heart, would say that is terrible. That is an awful, awful thing. Why then? Why then did the sound of freedom the movie one take five years, I think to see the light of day and two, why has it become you know, so controversial? Why has it become a left, right? Why has it become a, uh, I don't know what, what is the controversy around this movie? It just seems like the ultimate awareness campaign. Why did it get so much resistance? Yeah, it's been super frustrating to me from the beginning. And this should never, never have been a political issue ever. 
And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll point fingers where they need to be pointed. There are some people involved. The, uh, some of the actors are, are very alt-right and, uh, you know, speak at QAnon events. They, you know, even the, even, you know, the Homeland Security agent, you know, has been involved in some of those. And so, you know, the podcast that I've been on, I've been on some solid right-wing ones. I've been on left-wing ones as well. And, and, and I'm very careful to not get political on this. I mean, there are actually people out there who believe that the guys on the other side are the ones who were raping the kids. No, we've arrested people on both sides. That, is, that should never be an issue. Now, when it comes to the movie itself, um, I will say this. We're being controlled and, and we're allowing it to happen. Big media, big Hollywood is, uh, is controlled and they have very specific agendas. And these agendas are slowly taking away the moral foundations that we've been taught by our parents and our grandparents, et cetera. And we can see it and we all step back and say, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's not that bad. But if we really take a look at what's being fed to us, then you'll understand the bigger picture. And um, we went right in the beginning. We went into Sony and Lionsgate and Paramount and others and, and pitched this story to them. And they were interested because it was a pretty amazing story, but they wanted full literary control. They wanted the ability to change the story in any way that they wanted to. And we thought, no, I, I don't feel comfortable with that because we don't know what you, I mean, they could have tabled it for 10 years and never done anything with it. And so we decided to take this to the people by the people. This is a privately funded thing. I was the first investor, uh, primary investor in Sound of Freedom. And then, and then we brought on some other families as well to help make that happen. But then even after it was finished, almost five years ago, this film was completely done, ready for distribution. And we ran up against so much, so many roadblocks in every way. I mean, Fox International originally had the rights for the distribution. Disney bought them and then boom, we got stuck with now the distribution rights with somebody who didn't want to take it out. And we're like, crap. So we had to figure out how to buy out their position at a premium, all this crap. And then even after that, it got tied up for another six months by another Disney exec that promised $20 million he's going to put into distribution, ties the whole thing up. And then finally, at the very end, didn't do anything. And I don't know if, if he just went higher up and, and realized, hey, none of these guys are going to support me on this or what. But this happened over and over again. We got turned down by guys like Netflix. Okay? Netflix brought us cuties. Right? There's a bunch of 10-year-olds dressing up like, like strippers. They're okay with that? It, has, it makes you ask the hard questions, what is the agenda and why? This is not a religious film. And the only religious part of it is that Jim Caviezel says the words God's children are not for sale. Does that make it religious because I use the word God? No. Okay. And so, so it's, uh, and it's bringing to light a very sensitive subject, something that unfortunately a lot of the power players and the elite are involved with, and they don't want this awareness to be out with everybody. And understand that there's a lot of fallible people out there. You know, there's, there's the actors, they've made mistakes in their life, the Homeland Security agent, you know, there's a lot of crap coming out about him right now. Uh, and just full disclosure, I, five years ago, made a clear separation from Operation Underground Railroad and Tim Ballard. Um, 
and uh, and a lot of the things that are coming to light now. I you know I'm 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 not throwing anybody under the bus. I I, I have compassion for everybody who's dealing with all kinds of arrows that are being pointed at them. I mean I've I've had my share of of hit pieces coming in against me as well, and so. Um, but what I will say is that the, the big media, the news outlets, all of these guys that would not even promote our movie at all, the only way it got out to the world is by grassroots movement from really good people that put it out on social media and brought them in. You didn't hear about it anywhere on Yahoo and MSN, any of these guys, nothing about it at all. They didn't want to promote it at all. But now, now that there's any kind of negativity that they can push the other direction, that then they're then they're putting that out. And so it's, yeah, it's concerning. Were you given sure. a reason, or is it just not interested? Like when Netflix turns you down, Disney distribution doesn't want to put it out. Did you ever hear any reason? I was told that this uh, they didn't believe in it like we did, right? And they they didn't. And I thought I thought. I thought, am I the only guy that thinks this is a good movie? Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> I invested in it. Yeah, it's a great one, you know. But uh, I, I really thought, golly, maybe you guys are right. Maybe this isn't as good of a movie as I thought. But now what's crazy is once it started gaining traction, that then these guys showed their real colors, actively trying to silence us, actively. So we're like, okay, yeah, there's more to it than them not thinking it's going to go somewhere because now it's going somewhere. Are they just yeah. mad that we went around them? We went around the established monopoly within the big media and, and, and Hollywood as we know it. So, Very well yeah. could be. Very well could be. About three, four weeks ago, you talked about hit pieces. Maybe this is, maybe this isn't, but I want to dive into this. Vice mm -hmm. comes out mm -hmm. with an article. That says Sound of Freedom producer felt the naked breasts of apparently underage trafficking victim. And that, of course, is referring to you. Yep. I guess true, false, and what say you about the allegations? True. 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 Okay. Why? I'll tell you the story. So um, I had been doing undercover. Now realize I've done 70 missions. Okay. And you are, you are, um, after the first year, I didn't go in as the, the wealthy, business owner anymore that was paying for it, I was asked to start going deep cover um, because the, the foundation we were working with didn't want to have their own employees that were on payroll go out and, and uh, it, it was too risky. In fact, over the last 10 years, we, we have lost operators. One of them there in, in Dominican Republic got stabbed 27 times in, uh, in a region close to where you are. And so there's, there's, there's danger that's involved with these missions for sure. And these guys wanted to have a separation there. So I said, yeah, I'll help lead these undercover missions and identify where these kids are. And so I had done a bunch of them. Uh, Mexican federal police wanted us to, to follow up on a huge uptick of, of trafficking that was going on in and around Cabo San Lucas area. And uh, so we went in and immediately started getting approached by guys that were on the on the beach and in the in, in the main area and whatever, saying, "Hey, and what are you guys looking for? You want some weed? You want some blood? I got some kids. Whatever." They're offering them, and all of these guys were working with with a bigger group. Now, the goal is to go from that level one to a level two. You've got to get to the guys who actually have the kids. You've got to build relationships. So I've, I've got to build a relationship with the guys that are selling me cocaine, a good enough relationship where they're going to introduce me to their boss, right? 
and their boss, if I can get a good enough relationship with him, I can get up to his boss and then we can find out where, who actually has the kids, et cetera. So long story short, we had worked up to this guy. He was a bad dude. These guys, everybody said, do not cross him. He will kill you. Very, very, very dangerous. So we've dealt with dangerous before. I, I can deal with that, right? Well, he, um, he, he comes and he's like, okay, yeah, come here. Come here with me. I'll show you. I'll show you. Because I told him, listen, I, uh, I'm, I'm setting up this thing for my boss. We just need to make sure that you have the inventory. If, uh, if you show me um, some, I'll pay you $100 because we need him to show us where they are so that we can geotag the location. I said, you know, my boss will kill me if we taste the candy before the party, but we have to verify you have it, right? And so, so he's like, yeah, yeah, come with me, come with me. And we're walking down this alley and there's this, this sign that says strip club. And I'm like, I, I said to him, I said, you're wasting my time. Where are we going? He goes right here, the strip club. Now I know because we had done a bunch of stuff with the federal police. They, they're, they're really, they're really strict on making sure that Anybody that's working in those establishments is of age, right? So he was automatically, I knew that whatever he was going to show us there was not going to be a minor. But he's like, yeah, come here, come here. I'm like, okay, whatever. Now, as we walk up, the manager gets visibly concerned that this guy was there. So is everybody was cowering to him. And, and we walk in and I said, listen, I'm not going into the club because there's loud music there and whatever else. I've got a job to do. I'm only here a couple of days and I'm setting up something for my boss, right? He goes, okay, you just wait here. Just wait here. So he goes in with the manager and then he comes back down and he has these three girls. Now, my wife is 47 years old. She looks like she's 20, right? Okay. The, the, the Latina women hold their age really well. And I can tell the difference between somebody who's 20 and 30, whatever else. Now, now, they bring these girls down and he said, now she's 16, she's 16. Okay. I didn't believe she was 16, but it didn't matter. He was there. And then, and then this trafficker is standing next to me. The, the manager brings this girl over and lifts up her blouse. The trafficker reaches down and, and, and taps my hand, pushing it up. Now, at this point, I have to make a split decision. Within seconds, what do I do? If I pull back, I believe, I, I firmly believe that me and my team would have been in danger, right? This man, everybody cowered to him. That's number one. Number two, I, it was a very good chance that she was not a minor. She didn't look like a minor and, and she was working in a club, okay? Number three, I knew he was testing us because there was something bigger going on everywhere. And so, yeah, I went up there and and, uh, and touched her breast and said, yep, yep, that's, that's what our boss is looking for. Okay. So fast forward, we get back in the car and, and, and I call, I make a phone call to uh, a guy by the name of Matt. Matt was CIA for over a decade in Latin America doing undercover work. And I said, look, this is the very first time something like this has happened how do I deal with this? I mean, is this, he said she was 16, you know, is there, is there an issue here? I mean, how, he's, he's like, look, you've got full authorization from the Mexican federal police. He said, he said, this kind of thing happens all the time. And so that was, that was the gist of it. Now, here's what happened. This guy ended up introducing us to his boss. They brought 23 victims. Now at the, at the rescue, at the sting operation, the federal police said that the girls that were brought from the strip club were all over 18 years old. 
But here's the thing. That's irrelevant. It's irrelevant whether she was 16, whether she was 18, whether she was 35. That's irrelevant. What is relevant is this. That girl will never be back in a position, hopefully, but we took her out of the position where where, uh, a trafficker and a manager were forcing her to have some stranger touch her against her will. She was being trafficked, okay? And the other 22 victims are now back with their families and freed from that horrible world. So I'm not embarrassed about it at all. I followed protocol. My team members were there with me. There was nothing out of integrity, nothing out of honor in doing that mission. And I continued to do undercover rescue missions for for many years after that. And, And thousands of children between our foundation and other ones that I have helped to start and to fund, thousands are back with their families today. The, the article seemed to insinuate that there was the potential of criminal action being taken against you. Is that, is that real? Is that possible? And I guess no. it, well, let's start with that. Yeah, it's not real. And it's not, um, the, the, uh, Davis County, um, attorney's office or whatever in Utah, were doing an investigation on operation underground railroad. And they subpoenaed all of the records from them because they were looking into some financial allegations of, of, uh, of what the Homeland Security agent was doing. These are some of the reasons why I separated from them. So I was already completely separate from OUR at the time. I had left them because I was not impressed with some of the things that were going on uh, with, with the Homeland Security agent himself. And um, unfortunately, the movie had already been made. We had already taken eight different rescue missions and 50 plus operators and put them all together in just a, a few characters in the movie. And unfortunately, the character that plays him makes him look like he's the only hero. No, the real heroes are the guys who are still doing undercover work. Those are the hidden heroes. And most of, of the things over the last 10 years were done by them. And so, so um, from a criminal standpoint, they were looking into... OUR as a whole from a criminal standpoint. And they were, they, they, they were looking at some financial things, some sexual allegations against him, et cetera. And they ended up dropping that case. Now, the only reason why that was even in there is because that transcript, when I called the, the CIA agent uh, or the, for, the, former, uh, the former CIA operative and told him everything, he just took notes on it. He said, yeah, Paul called in. He was concerned that, you know, the trafficker said she was 16, was concerned, you know, how does he handle these things in the future? I'm very good friends with the with the, the federal police in Mexico. They have begged us to come back many, many times, and we've done a great job in working with them. Um, I wasn't working for the U.S. government. I was working for the Mexican government. And, uh, and even in the U.S., I had full authorization to be down there. And, and it was verified by the Mexican federal police that she was overage. And even if she wasn't, was irrelevant. So yeah, there's, there's zero investigation. There's nothing that I'm not even worried about one iota. And, um, and they, the, the, when it says Davis County dropped the case, it wasn't a case against me. It never was. It was the case as a whole that they were looking into Operation Underground Railroad at the time. I can only imagine you mentioned it, the, the decisions that need to be made, the, the, the moment by moment, split second thoughts that go through your mind when you're undercover like that. So I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate you going deep into that. I was, I asked you at the jump, like, is this something that's discussable for you? And you yeah, said, hey, I'm, I'm, open a, book. I'm a completely open book. I, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing hidden about me whatsoever. I'm, uh, 
I'm a, I'm, I'm a fallible person. You know, I'm on my third marriage. This one's going to last, you know, I've screwed up plenty of times in my life, but in that operation on, uh, in that situation, I, I do not regret it. Not one second. Appreciate you saying that. Appreciate you talking through that. I should say on the point of you being an open book and the movie being out there, there's, there's obviously, I mean, you can't, you can't blink and not hear the term human trafficking. The awareness campaign is, is it's pervasive. It's everywhere, right? How much though, or what would you say, I guess, to those who are critical of the fact that you do share some of the undercover stories that you are sharing what you're doing and how that might be compromising the efforts of those that are in the field right now. Every single mission is different. The ones that I shared, um, they were the old ways that we were doing things. And frankly, they were super ineffective. The, this, this whole going in and getting the traffickers to bring all the children together for this big party. Uh, it was more so that the Homeland Security agent could get a whole bunch of video of, of this so that he could tell the story. You know, and we were behind this. We're like, you know what? We have to create awareness, right? We've got to have some documentaries. We've got to show what's going on. And you can't take a camera when you're doing the deep cover stuff. It's That's dangerous to, to have a camera there that's picking up or whatever else. And so if we did, we have these little button cameras or some super covert ones and whatever. And so uh, what we have found since then is that, that uh, there's a lot of new ways the last four years that don't involve getting the kids all to come into a party type of a thing. Cause some, some, some would argue that some of the traffickers would bring in additional victims that maybe weren't being, we were, we, we were very careful to make sure that we, we weren't creating any trafficking, but, but the risk was there in that way that, that, that Tim wanted to do these rescue missions. So fast forward, the things we've been doing the last few years that I don't discuss publicly, uh, they, don't, they don't have those issues. It's more of a confidential informant identifying where the kids are being held, geotagging those locations, and then turning that over. And the federal police do the rescues. They do the stings without us even being there and getting arrested as part of it. It's a lot cleaner operation. It just doesn't allow a whole bunch of cameras to be there when it happens. You haven't been stabbed 27 times, thankfully, for you, but yeah. others have, obviously. Yeah. What's the closest, or is there a time that you can recall, maybe there wasn't an actual physical event, but where, man, it got close. Did you ever have a moment in any of these operations where you felt like, oof, this might be, this might be, this might compromise my safety right now? Absolutely. The, the story that I told earlier in Cabo, um, that, that trafficker, he was six foot three, super bad man. The next day he called me up and he said, Pablo. This is the day after the incident, quote, okay? He called me up the next day. He goes, Pablo, he says, I have to, I have to meet you. I have to meet you. It's okay, we'll meet. So me and some of the team guys went to where we meet him, and he jumps in the car. And he says, I said, where are we going? He said, uh, I said, I, I'll pay you. I said, you know, that the, the one you took me last night, I don't think my boss is interested. They look like grandmas to me. But he goes, no, 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 I show you something. I, 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 I'm, I, can, I can get you everything. He said, uh, you know I'm the king, right? I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm the boss. I said, oh, yeah, it's very obvious. You're the boss of this whole region. Everybody cowered at this guy. And everybody said he was selling kids. He said, well, every boss has a boss. And I'm going to take you to see my boss. He said, he's in charge. He's in charge of everything from Tijuana, Mexicali, all the way down to Cabo. His family's in charge of most of Mexico. I said, really? Who's his family? He said, his uncle is El Chapo. I'm like, oh, shit. Right <laughs> now, we found out later 
that he wasn't connected to El Chapo's family in any way, but he was using that as a, as a fear tactic with all the people he was running, right? So we pull up in this parking lot area and we get out and this guy is a man in charge. He's got $2,000 shoes on. He's got a watch more expensive than mine on, right? He, I mean, he is loaded and there's, we could see at least three that we could see guys with guns on us, bodyguard type guys. And we get out and conversation went like this. He goes, oh, he says, uh, hey, I hear you're looking for a party. I said, I hear you can provide what my boss is looking for. He goes, how many you want? I says, oh. And now his, his lower level guy had already told us that he had over 30 kids. I said, well, my, my boss says bringing some of his friends down. If you can provide 30, then he says, I have that right now. How, would, how soon you want to have the party? I said, well, he, he's got some things going on this week, but I said, and we're going back and forth, arguing whatever else on pricing and whatever. And, and then he said, I told him, look, I'll give you, I have to verify you have them. So I'll give you a hundred dollars for each one that you show me. Cause if we can get him to take us to where they are, we can geotag that location. And he goes, nope. He said, you're going to pay me $2,000 right now. Now we knew there was guns on us. And I said, why would I pay you? Why would I pay you two thousand now? If you told me you're going to show up at my party with cocaine, I'm not going to pay you for it now and hope that you're going to show up. How do I know that you can provide what you say you can provide? And he looked. He came forward and he says, "Listen to me carefully. You ask any mother ever in this city if I can provide what I say I can provide." He said, "All the people on the streets that you talk to, they all work for me. The police, they all work for me." If you're going to have a party in my city, in my country, you're going to go through me and you're going to give me $2,000 right now. Now, I didn't have the cash on me right then. I knew we had got to a high level guy. And I said, listen, I'll be back. I don't have it. I'll be back in two hours and I'll make sure you have it. So we follow protocol, make sure we're not being followed. I go back to the safe house, bring the cash. Two hours later, we're back and we get out. He says, you have my money? I said, yeah. Boom, 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 give them the money. Now, this time I could see at least eight who had eyes on us at the time. This is the most dangerous, right? I give them the money. And then he said, give me your business card. I reached in my pocket. And fortunately, I had my business card for my undercover profile. It had a fake phone number, a fake address, everything, fake email, all of this stuff. And he looks at the card and he said, tell me your phone number. As he's looking at my card. Now, if I didn't have my undercover number memorized like that, I would have been shot. And then he said, take out your phone. Show me your phone. I take out my phone and he's looking at the face of it. He takes out his phone and he dials the phone number, my undercover number that was on my card. Now, if I did not have it properly routed and coming in so it rang on my real phone, I didn't want to have a real phone number on my car because then they could figure out who I really was. That would be super dangerous, right? So I had all of this stuff set up. Boom, his phone number rings. He smiles. He said, I like you. Come here. And he goes and he shows me some, it's a, he has this black truck that's lowered and big, beautiful rims and he pulls open the doors and there's three three kids in there. I said, yeah, that's what my boss is looking for. But yeah, that's one of many that got pretty dicey, but I, it's the end of the story that, that I started with. Wow. Wow. The, the going one step further on this and then, and then I want to, I want to talk about something else real quick, but 
when when that ha- like what is the what does the sting look like you mentioned you get arrested so all right so this guy opens the doors there's three kids in there so you're you're geotagging this location everyone knows that there are kids to be rescued here then what what happens next and what happens to you well in that situation because he had brought them in the truck didn't do me any good to geotag it because he brought them from somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. So at that point, I said, listen, I, uh, you and I stay in contact. And he says, download this app, this app called Wicker. He said, and every time I send you a message, the second that you see it, it disappears and vice versa. He said, and if you screenshot it, I know that you did. So don't. I'm like, okay. So we, we do this app type of a thing that he, he uh, and then, um, and I told him my, my boss is interested in me setting up a party. So I'll stay in touch with you and figure out a time for that, et cetera. We go back to the hotel, uh, to the, our safe house that we were staying at, and I type up a full report, everything that happened, all the details, this phone number, the, you know, how we were introduced. I mean, even the incident the night before, all of that was all t- typed up to that for the head of the federal police. I send that in. The next morning, when I woke up, I had nine missed phone calls. I, I, called, I called the federal police back. I said, what's going on? He said, get out. He said, that guy is the guy. We've been trying to get with him for three years. He said, you were on the ground in less than 24 hours and you have his phone number. He said, we couldn't get his phone number. He said, we've already got a judge's order and we've tapped his phone and we've identified all the people he's connected with. We don't have enough manpower in the area to keep you safe. Get on the next plane. Just communicate with him from the U.S. So boom, fly back to the U.S. And just I, I text him, hey, my boss told me that we, you know, we got to, um, Got some stuff I had to come back up here for, but yeah, he's super interested in having a party. When can we get this set up? And uh, so we we set it up for less than a, less than two weeks later. And uh, the the federal police didn't trust any of the local cops because a lot of them were on his pay- payroll from what they from what they could tell. And so they flew seventy police officers from Mexico City in, and and this guy shows up with twenty three victims, and. Um, we actually unfortunately had to let some of the other traffickers that we had connected with go because he was so high level. The, the federal police said we want to just focus full time on him. So uh, him and, and about five, six of his guys ended up showing up with these kids. And um, I told him I was setting this up for my boss. You know, we had this beautiful home with a beautiful pool and stuff there. And so he comes with all the kids. We set them on the other side of the pool. We're sitting there talking back and forth with him. After we have all of the stuff on record on video, we order tequila. And tequila means that the, that the waiters go back and radio in the raid. And boom, everybody comes down. Everybody gets arrested. And so I'm laying there on the ground. I've got handcuffs on. And I've got the, the federal agent whose office we were in the day before. He's, he's there, you know, with a, with a, a rifle in his hand and, and you know, uh, over the top of me, et cetera. And I turn my head. And this guy, this, this trafficker was three or four feet away. And I turned my head and I said, hey, I said, you, you told me the police work for you. How, how, how come I'm getting arrested, right? Because I had to make it look real, right? I said, how can I get arrested? He goes, he goes these, are, these aren't mine. These are, these are feds. These are feds. And the, the federal agent who was on top of him had a taser and said, shut up and tased him. And he went like that. I had to turn my head so he wouldn't see me laughing because watching him get tased, that was the best part of the whole mission. Right. I'm like, do it again. So, yeah, they're in prison for life. Uh, good. That's a good end to that story. That's a great end to that story. I, I'm, I'm wondering here as we I just this has come to my mind before. I haven't watched the movie. 
And it's not because I can't. It's because I, I, I struggle with being able to, to emotionally deal with the movie. And it makes me think about, I think there's a lot like me. Maybe it's a little bit of cowardice on my part, but be that as it may. I think there's a lot of people, and I, I go back to, uh, you probably remember the commercials, um, 30 cents a day, you can help a kid. And those commercials were just so sad. And it was, studies were done. People turn them off. It, it, it was not a great <laughs> recruitment effort to show that sort of pain in people in order to, to get your wallet open and, and, and help those people, right? It's got to be a bit more uplifting. How do you strike the balance or how have you strike the balance, struck the balance between awareness, but at the same time, hope such that people are willing to come along on this journey with you, with their money, with their time, with their effort, with whatever it may be? Yeah. Well, first of all, with the movie, um, you will find uh, that the reason so many people are promoting it to their friends and family is because it is full of light and darkness both. You're going to cry. You're going to go through a box of tissues while you're there. Um, but it's such a beautiful light at the end of the tunnel with the rescue of the children. And, and, um, and, and there's, there's, just, there's just valiant people throughout the world that all contributed to these missions that we all put together in the characters of the film. And so it was beautifully done. Very, very well done. This does not look like a $14 million film. It'll look like a $50, $60 million film when you watch it because our, our, um, our director was just so brilliant with it. So that's number one. Number two, um, I have found that just like in this conversation, you know, I make I laugh about, you know, the trafficker getting tased and whatever else. It's, it's, a, it's a serious issue. It's something that we all need to get our heads around and do something about it. Um, the truth is this. If we don't take a look at the problem, it will continue to persist. The problem is not a bunch of kids that have been transferred to another country in, in container ships, and that's where the, the, the trafficking is going on. The problem's in our own backyard. And the movie allows for conversations to happen that weren't appropriate for a polite dinner conversation two years ago, right? And so now that people have seen it, now they can talk about it and say, okay, where is this coming from? What do we need to do? to be able to, to eradicate this. And now we can start talking about where the demand is coming from. We can start talking about generational trauma. We can start talking about all of these things that really need to happen to raise the, the global consciousness of mankind and get us to the point where we can heal through this so that it's not even a thing. So that's the purpose of it. The reason why I invested in the beginning is to create a movement and an opportunity to say, okay, now that I have your attention, let's talk about this. And, and that's where we can go down this road of healing. In five years, three years, two years, whatever it may be, you and I sit down again and we're talking about the problem of child trafficking. Less than your hope, more your assessment from what you see on the ground. Where are we? Best case, worst case, what do you see happening from an assessment standpoint based on the data and the information that you have available to you? Where are we with human trafficking, child trafficking in the next three to five years? I believe that we have started a chain reaction with enough good people now being aware 
that there will be people like myself who step out and say, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my time, my money, my resources, my voice, whatever, to, to continuing this mission. Um, you're going to start having conversations with many, many people talking about healing and healing retreats and different modalities and things like that. Um, I believe we've, we've reached a point of critical mass that will continue this momentum. I truly believe that it will. Up until this time, it was a losing battle. That movie started a spark, and that spark is global. I'm, 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 I'm on the other side of the world, and random people that just in, in a coffee shop this morning had heard of the movie, had seen the movie, it's creating a movement globally. And in doing so, millions of good people will step forward. In fact, back at the time of Abraham Lincoln, it wasn't the guys rescuing the slaves that created the biggest difference. Jamie, it was people like you. It was people like like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the media of the age. And it created an awareness with good people of what was going on in the South. In fact, reportedly, Years later, when Abraham Lincoln met her, he shook her hand. He said, so you're the little lady that wrote the book that started the big war, right? So today, our goal is not to start a war. It's not a a physical revolution with guns against our governments. But yes, it is a revolution against trafficking as a whole. This is something that, that we in our civilized world that we live in, we're above this. We cannot... We cannot sit back and allow this kind of thing to happen, not only in third world countries, but in our own backyards. We need to step forward and say, we will preserve innocence. We're going to preserve the innocence of our children and not have them grow up with this generational trauma that so many people are dealing with. I believe five, 10 years from now, we have the same conversation. You're going to say, dang, Paul. You, uh, you threw gas on fire and that thing just lit up. So um, hundreds of millions, billions, billions of lives will have changed because of what we started. Man, I hope you're right. That's my hope. And I believe, I believe that you're right, that this was the spark that started it. Interesting comparison. The book to the war. The book started the war. The movie started this action, if you will. And I know we're in a more modern era than a, a war where people, oddly, civil war times, line up 20 feet from each other and shoot. <laughs> but be that as it may, is there a tipping point? Is there a, a parallel to the civil war? So the, the movie sparked it. In the next few years, do you see, does somebody need to go down? Does some, some event need to happen in your estimation, in your mind, that is akin to the civil war starting from the from Uncle Tom's cabin. Sound of freedom is the spark. What's the big tipping point? Is there one? Yeah. Um, I like to say this: that the the sound of freedom is not just the sound of the 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 children joyous laughter at the end of that rescue in Colombia. The sound of freedom is that should be a war cry for every one of us in our own lives, in which we can all step back and say, okay, the things that we have been allowing in our homes are causing this and so many other problems, okay? The the, the second that we as adults can step back and say, okay, I now can see how 
hardcore pornography ends up being addictive and people end up wanting something harder and more grotesque or younger, whatever, and this can add to it. I can now grow up and say, all right, all of this crap that's coming in uh, from, a, from a very controlled uh, Hollywood and, and big media, et cetera, enough is enough. We're going to stand up together and say, no, we're going to support groups like Angel Studios, who brought, brought us the, the TV series The Chosen and now has brought us uh, the, um, the Sound of Freedom, et cetera. We're going we're gonna to support good entertainment, healthy entertainment. We're going to change what's coming into our homes. That's a big deal. Um, I do think that this energy as a whole, this negative energy of greed and arrogance that's fueling child trafficking and everything else is also fueling things like the war in the Middle East. I mean, this is, this is a battle that's been going on for thousands of years. Really, guys, get over it. They believe differently than you. Can we get along? Can we just step back and say it's okay that I have a different set of belief systems than you. Your truth is your truth. My truth is mine. We don't have to be shooting each other over a differing ideology, you know, but it's all coming from this arrogance and this, this greed and this, this, this hatred that's been taught to the children and, and for, for generations. So I hope that it doesn't, have to be a global war to bring people to their knees. But somehow we need to step back and say, what we're doing isn't working if we're still spending trillions of dollars on on weapons that could literally wipe out the entire globe, right? That and and the generational trauma of of sexual things with the kids, all this is all crap that we sit back saying, oh, we're so civilized. No, we're not. Let's take a step back and figure out what needs to happen for us really to heal. How do we get back to moral principles where we can we don't look at another person with any degree of arrogance? It doesn't matter if I have a bigger checkbook or if I have if I'm white or if I'm a male, none of those things matter. What matters is is the fact that every one of us have have the 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 this beautiful divine light within us and if we can see each other for that we can start getting over these differences and we can we can shed our own trauma and and in turn save millions of children you know what's interesting about what you just talked about it made me think about another interview i recently did a guy named scott eyman who's a hollywood biographer he's written books on kind of the golden age folks john wayne Cary grant people like that and he wrote a book recently called uh, Charlie Chaplin versus America. So Charlie Chaplin, I, I didn't know this, was one of the preeminent names on the on the blacklist, the Hollywood blacklist from the 40s and 50s. You know, uh, what's his name? The FBI director back then, Hoover, wanted him out. And he wasn't an American citizen, so, you know, uh, he ended up winning. He ended up being able to get him out. But what was interesting in that discussion, we talked about entrepreneurship, which some of the stuff on Charlie Chaplin was just fascinating. Fascinating. Recommend the book. But he talked about in that time how the ultra right, if you will, was the at the time, the party of sort of sort of uh, of censorship. They didn't want communist ideology to be shared anywhere. And therefore and even even, you know, Charlie Chaplin was a bit of a womanizer. So there was that whole thing like ah, non-traditional values. So he made the point in his in his analysis and in what he's done that Hollywood in that time shifted left because there was censorship coming from the hard right. 
Fast forward to today. Censorship is coming from the hard left, it seems. When I hear people like Bill Maher and Sean Penn talking to each other about how crazy leftists are, Bill Maher and Sean Penn are talking about how crazy <laughs> leftists are on Bill Maher's uh, audio or video podcast. Like we have, censorship has gone crazy. And when you look at the stats in Hollywood, how fewer and fewer movies are made in Hollywood today, I think it's gone from like 80% to 40 or 50%. It's being filmed elsewhere, Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, not exactly liberal strong points. I just think and wonder as we talk about me sort of thinking about the potential answer to that question, are we coming to a point where censorship, same reaction, I don't want to say shifts right, but shifts away from that, which may look like shifting right more toward traditional values, more toward, you know, pornography being rightfully so eradicated or, or not even eradicated, but uh, stigmatized at, a, at the mm -hmm. very minimum. It's okay mm -hmm. to have stigma. It really is. It's healthy for society. <laughs> stigmatizing yeah, exactly. in my estimation like saying you are something that you're not that should be stigmatized that's my position not yours but just putting it out there so anyway mm -hmm. i just thought that was a really interesting parallel to uh, the potential tipping point after the spark of sound of freedom I, wow. I'm, I'm hoping you're right i i think i think you are because i, I think we've 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 started that conversation that is continuing and i'm i'm hoping that the you know there's a lot of of negative press out there about, and, and rightfully so, about some of the, um, uh, the actions done by uh, the, the Homeland Security agent that, that uh, Jim Caviso plays, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not one to point fingers there, but there's a lot of allegations that are coming out. And I, I, of course, made that separation five years ago. And I'm just hoping that people don't see that and say, oh, yeah, well, that means child trafficking doesn't exist. No, I'm, I'm here to tell you I've been there. And there are hundreds of operators who are on the ground who we made the movie about. We just couldn't show them that are still doing undercover work. And so, yes, it is a problem. It's, the, it's a massive problem problem and it's something that we all need to take this movie and say yeah let's not let's not judge the movie by by the the political aspirations i mean the the actor who's playing me is running for president in mexico eduardo verastegui right and so you know there's, there's people say oh he just is using child trafficking to to promote himself whatever you know what stop judging let's just look at what we can do in our own families and and start the conversation that the movie allows us to do yeah, I think we're I think we're too far down the road. I have one final question, very important question. But before I ask it, where should folks uh, go to learn more about you, about what you're doing? How can people help and get involved? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So uh, number one, you can find me on all social media. Just type in liberating ing liberating dot humanity. I'm on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook. Now, realize this four months ago, I had no Instagram, Facebook. You know, I, 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 I was still undercover last year. And so, uh, but it's grown to significant. I think we've had over 250 million views on all of the podcasts that I've done and the videos, et cetera. So it's super beautiful. And there's a lot of new information and stuff that's coming in there, things you can do to help keep your family safe, et cetera. So you can go onto the website, Liberating Humanity. Liberating, again, I-N-G, liberatinghumanity.com. Um, or you can look us up with the Child Liberation Foundation. There's um, the Child Liberation Foundation. You can go to liberatechildren.org 
and you can donate a dollar a month, five dollars a month, a hundred dollars a month, doesn't matter. Or you can just get some more information of things that you can do to help keep your family safe and, and heal your children. So Liberating Humanity or uh, the Child Liberation Foundation, or that's my whole life between the two. Appreciate that. All right. Final, very important question. As another guy married uh, to a Latina, <laughs> any tips or advice you would give on getting my wife to be within one hour, let's say, of being on time for anything? <laughs> that's, my, that's my biggest frustration, being married to a Latina. And, and I can't even tell you. I'm like, here's what I do. I actually, I say, sweetie, just so you know, um, I never lied to you, but there is one thing that sometimes I'm going to lie to you about. And if it's an important meeting, I'm going to tell you that it's an hour before it really starts. I'm just going to tell you right now. So, so you won't get mad. So and then she forgets that I actually told her that. So that way I'm not really lying. And I will with a total straight face. Yes, we've got to be there by 6 p.m. Now it's really 7, but it's the only way I can actually get there by 7. <laughs> I've had to vary that time just to keep her. <laughs> keep her on her toes, right? Minutes, right? An hour, 20 minutes before, even two hours before, whatever I could do. And then I've got to keep that like annoyed urgency when we're late for the wrong time, even though I know we're going to be sitting around doing nothing for an hour. Exactly. So, <laughs> we're alive. So Tactically, we're alive. Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for asking the hard questions. And, and I'm, I'm super grateful for your willingness to, to allow me to share with your audience and I'm super excited about where things are going. And I'd love to reconnect in five years and say, all right, what have we done? Because I, I think, I think we're going to see a movement happening and it will be significant. Man, I hope so. I hope so. Thank you again. <laughs>